This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. So, Alan is one of those people who uh, really, actually, both sides of the political spectrum talk to and get advice from, and that makes him unusual. And that's because he's a straight shooter and an innovative thinker with respect to tax policy. And indeed, early on, you were one of the people who was talking to the Trump administration about the tax at the border, the, I can't remember the name of it, the, what's the name? Oh, it, uh, border Adjustment Tax. Border Adjustment yes, Tax, yes. yes. So, you know, Alan is somebody who, who really is uh, an innovative, interesting thinker. I'm hoping tonight he's going to tell us what the hell happened with the tax bill. Um, and I want to do that in several parts. First, we're just going to go over what the tax bill did. Then I'm going to ask him to do sort of a demand-side analysis, a standard Keynesian analysis of what the impacts would be. But, of course, that's not the way it was justified. It was really justified on a supply-side argument. And I'm going to ask him to go through that argument. And then we're going to talk about the long-term consequences because increasingly it's becoming uh, clear, this new CBO report, Congressional Budget Office report, which suggests that it's going to create enormous deficits into the future. And we're going to talk about what those impacts might look like. So let's start with what was done. And so we have individual tax changes, estate tax changes, corporation taxes, and then an Affordable Care Act piece. So could you just go through <laughs> what happened? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think you've, this, the timing is good. You've all found out in the last week what happened. What, well, actually, under the old system, what happened. But uh, next year at this time, you'll, you'll be, uh, if you haven't figured it out by then, you'll, you'll, think, you'll notice what's happening to you. Um, this was a, a big tax cut, not, not as big as some in the past, uh, but, uh, but certainly a, sig- a significant tax cut. It was also... Uh, characterized as a tax reform. I think there's some debate about that. It, it had uh, pretty big changes, both with respect to businesses and corporations, as well as individuals. Uh, perhaps the single uh, biggest change was the fact that the corporate tax rate was reduced from 35% to 21%. That's a, that's a major change. Uh, and was seen by uh, many uh, not not just uh, Republican supporters, as uh, something in need, not necessarily that particular reduction in the corporate tax rate, but some reform of the corporate tax system. So there were a lot of uh, fairly complicated changes in the system, particularly that multinational companies uh, face. Uh, also, some very, very complicated provisions affecting so-called pass-through businesses, businesses that are not uh, corporations, but which now account for perhaps half of all uh, business sector activity in the U.S. Uh, Those are likely to be quite complicated because the dividing line between businesses and individuals for uh, business income that isn't going through corporations is not always very easy to draw. Uh, As to the uh, individual side, uh, there were cuts in individual tax rates, uh, those of us in California know there was a reduction in the in, uh, mortgage interest deductibility and, in particular, a cap on deductibility of state and local taxes at 
$10,000 uh, combined property and, st and state income taxes, um, which is a very big change for, for those of us who live in states with, with high, uh, uh, high state and local taxes. Uh, as Henry said, there was a repeal of the mandate uh, of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which in this funny world of uh, budget scorekeeping, it was a revenue generator uh, because it reduced the subsidies that have to be paid under the Affordable Care Act because people who qualified for subsidies who previously were required by law to buy insurance if they didn't have it now are no longer required to do so. And so even though they're getting a good deal, many of them may choose not to, not to opt for the insurance and therefore the government saves money. And so that counts as a plus sign in uh, government uh, scorekeeping, not necessarily for in terms of public policy. Uh, a key thing to keep in mind in all of this is that there are uh, a lot of temporary provisions in the law. And uh, this is due to, uh, you might say, parliamentary issues, particularly with respect to the Senate. Uh, the Senate had a budget resolution that said their tax cut uh, couldn't lose more than $1.5 trillion over 10 years. And... Uh, what they wanted to do would have lost more than that, so they had to make some of the provisions expire during the 10-year period. And then they have another budget rule that says that uh, provisions uh, beyond the 10-year budget period for which official scorekeeping is done uh, can't be assessed as generating deficits beyond the 10-year period. Well, what do you do if you've got a tax cut and it's an, losing money every year, and then the 10th year comes and you have to uh, not lose money beyond that. Well, you repeal all the provisions that lose money. And so the individual tax cuts, many of them, go away in, at the end of the next 10 years. Wink, wink. I mean, that, that's, what the, that's what the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act says. Of course, we had a similar provision with the Bush tax cuts in 2001, and then we spent the next 10 years fighting about what to do about the expiring provisions. And so that will undoubtedly happen in the future, but what it does, uh, the, the provisions that expire after 10 years, as well as the provisions that expire before 10 years, uh, do is that uh, in addition to the usual uncertainty that would surround the adoption of a major new tax system, knowing, you know, trying to figure out what all the effects are going to be, we now have the additional layer of uncertainty of not even knowing what the law is going to be three, five, seven years from now, and that you know, clearly uh, should be affecting what businesses decide to do and, and uh, what individual households decide to do. And that's one of the challenges that uh, economic forecasters face in trying to figure out exactly what the effects of this uh, tax law are going to be. So one thing I think that's, as I looked at it, that at first was confusing to me, and I think I've sorted it out, but it want to know if I'm right, is that actually the corporation, straight corporation tax cut was about $300 billion. But in fact, a lot of the cuts for corporations are the pass-through entities and S-corporations, and that's going to amount to something like $700 billion through those mechanisms for corporations, loosely defined. Is that about right? Uh, you know, you're, you've got the numbers more in mind than I, than I do right now. The the provision for pass-through entities that has gotten a lot of attention is a 20% deduction 
uh, for, of, of income, that is allowing you to not to count 20% of the income subject to tax, if you're a qualifying pass-through business. Now, uh, they, the term of art that came up in the discussion uh, as they were putting this th- thing together, and by the way, just as an aside, they did this in seven weeks. The Tax Reform Act of 1986, probably from the first discussions to the final passage, probably took more like about three years. Um, and so you might say you get what you pay for uh, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of uh, the care with which some of these provisions were, uh, uh, were formulated. Um, but what, what they've tried to do is to say, well, of course, we only want real businesses. So Professor Auerbach's consulting income, well, that's not a real business. Um, and, you know, if, if you're a lawyer, no, that's not, real, that's not a real business either. Uh, and so they've, they've put in so-called, tried to put in so-called guardrails to make it so that the businesses that they intended to bless get the benefits, the other ones don't. Uh, you know, to the extent that their targeting is effective and they en- end up hitting the businesses they want to hit, it may have some impact on business activity. Uh, it's probably still the case that the legislation favored corporations more than it favored pass-through entities to the, in the sense of lowering tax rates more, but it really does depend on the circumstances. There may be some cases in which being a pass-through entity is very attractive. So let's first go through a classic demand-side analysis of what you might expect the impact of a tax cut like this to be, and how does that operate in an economy that's pretty darn near full employment? That's, that's a, uh, the second question is a particularly good one. They're, I mean, they're both good questions. So uh, when uh, we try to think about the, ec- the macroeconomic effects of uh, tax reforms or tax cuts, there are the so-called supply-side effects and the demand-side effects. So we're talking here about the demand-side effects, which are really just give people more money, uh, encourage them to buy things, whether it's investment goods or just things that households buy with additional income. Um, and in, in, according to Keynesian doctrine, that encourages uh, demand in the economy, encourages employment. Uh, there is a pretty significant st- demand stimulus built into this legislation, particularly in the first few years before some of these uh, uh, unexploded bombs go off in terms of uh, expiring provisions. The question is, in not this isn't 2009, which was when the first year of the Obama administration, we had a big fiscal stimulus, which was adopted. You know, there were some tax cuts, but it was mostly spending. But it was it was aimed at uh, trying to help the economy, which was very weak at the time. What do you do when the unemployment rate is 4.1 percent, which you know by our usual reckoning is in the neighborhood of what we call full employment, and then you just shove additional stimulus into it? This is uh, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, and we're not really sure. Uh, and one of the reasons we're not really sure is that uh, we haven't had as much inflation in recent years as we kept expecting. The Fed and other economic, economic forecasters have continually predicted that wages would be going up faster, prices would be going up faster. We'd sort of hit the wall where we had all the employment pretty much we could, we could absorb, and additional demand would just start pushing prices up. It hasn't happened, and a little bit happened, but it really, the, the Fed is, uh, you know, supposed to be aiming at around a 2% inflation rate. We've actually been below that uh, recently. 
And so now that we're adding more stimulus, we know at some point it has to end, but we're not quite sure where that is. And as a result, uh, you know, re- reputable forecasters, uh, such as the Congressional Budget Office, which tries to sort of track what private sector forecasters are doing, are predicting we are going to have some additional demand stimulus uh, as a result of the tax law, even though we think we're pretty close to full employment. For example, CBO is predicting that the unemployment rate two years from now is going to be 3.3%. Now, we're talking about the lowest unemployment rate uh, in decades. This is, this is sort of at the height of the Vietnam War when we were just pumping money in the economy because of all the defense spending. We were getting down into that neighborhood. And so this is really pretty unprecedented. And, uh, and yet they're only projecting a slight increase in inflation. So uh, we're conducting an experiment here. We're all participants, whether willing or not. And uh, we're going to see how much of uh, this uh, increase in economic uh, activity in the next few years actually happens, as opposed to pushing, simply uh, pushing uh, into, uh, more prices up and resulting in more inflation. A lot of it does depend on the, what the Federal Reserve does. And the Federal Reserve is more of a question mark than usual because there's been so much turnover there, not just at the top, but other positions that are open and are currently being filled. So one of the arguments that the administration used is the participation rate is low. And therefore, it's true the unemployment rate is low, but there's still just lots of people out there who, if given the chance, would love to enter the job market, and that's where some of the growth is going to come from. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it, it's, there, that is an issue. There, there has been a, a drop. Uh, if you look back, to, say, just before the recession, say in 2007, and look now, uh, the, the, the labor force participation rate of, say, prime age workers, you know, 25 to 64 or some, uh, some category like that, particularly among men, uh, has been declining. Uh, it, it fell a lot. It typically does fall during recessions because of so-called d- discouraged workers who aren't looking for employment anymore. It picked up uh, a- a- during the recovery, but it, it's still not where it was. Uh, now, part of it has to do with uh, the change in age structure. There's a lot more people in the upper end of that range getting close to retirement age and uh, typically have a lower uh, labor force participation rate. Part of it is uh, opioids and the loss of jobs in, in particular parts of the country. You know, you may have jobs in, in the Bay Area and, and people living in, in, in parts of West Virginia who need jobs, and that's, there's not necessarily a very good connection between those, the, the demand and supply in that, uh, of labor there. Uh, it's hard to know. There, there is some possibility, certainly if the economy is running white hot, it's probably true that some people who've been out of work for a long time may, uh, may go back into the labor force and get jobs. It's, it's, this is one of the uh, uh, big uncertainties in t- when people are predicting how much additional output we might get. So there's some demand-side stimulus that might occur, but is it enough to get us to the kind of growth rates that some people have been talking about? And I've heard numbers that were 4 or 5%, that kind of growth rate. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where the bidding ended. Uh, uh, you know, if, if some said 4, some said 5. Uh, you know, you can get, uh, you know, we, we, you think, oh, what's it just another percent of GDP? Well, you know, a, a, 
GDP's you know closing in on twenty trillion dollars. So uh, you know one percent of that's a, you know that that's a big number. Um, so you know we're going to have a little bit faster growth uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, just to give you an idea, the uh, if you look over the next ten years and look at where the consensus predictions are, CBO, various leading private forecasters, they're typically predicting that the sort of average growth over the next 10 years may, that the GDP may be, at the end of the period, maybe, you know, six-tenths of a percent, one percent higher. We're not talking about growth rates. We're talking about levels. So it's, it's just not not going to be that kind of uh, not that kind of growth. Okay, but you haven't talked about supply side, and we know that's the magic formula, as Jack Kemp told us. Uh, and so, tell me how the supply side story differs from the demand side, and what avenues will be active to cause supply side increases in growth and so forth. So, first of all, there's a. Uh, it's an issue of uh, interpretation. What is a supply-side uh, tax cut? What is a demand-side tax cut? But I think generally what is meant by supply-side uh, effects is uh, things that change incentives, uh, whether incentives of individuals or households. And in particular, we're thinking there about uh, the tax rates that affect how much you invest, how much you work, how much you save. And, you know, if you cut tax rates... Uh, you to encourage you or you discourage people less from doing the various things that are taxed. So if my tax rate on uh, my wage and salary income goes down, then working an additional hour uh, lets me keep more of the income that I earn, and so I'm encouraged to do so. If I'm an investor and a corporate investor, and I I have a face a lower corporate tax rate, uh, and I'm making an investment that's going to generate profits, that I get to keep more of the profits. I'm going to be encouraged to do that. So the idea behind these supply-side effects is that you're going to get uh, more economic activity. Uh, and uh, unlike in the case of demand stimulus, where once you hit full employment, unless you can pull out those discouraged, pull those discouraged workers back into the labor force, there's no additional capacity of, for the economy to produce, and so it ends up just pushing prices up. If you actually have more productive investment, more people willing to work, people willing to work longer hours, you have a greater capacity for the economy to produce. And so you could actually have higher growth and without any negative effects such as inflation. The problem is that when you look at the details, you, you can't get something for nothing. If you want to cut tax rates, you've basically got two choices. Uh, one is you can make the tax system less progressive. Uh, that, that is, if you wanted to have a very flat tax structure, you could lower most of the tax rates that most people face, but uh, that means it's, the system is going to be less equitable. It's going to be less progressive. Or you could cut spending, government spending substantially. That is, don't, you don't need as much revenue. You can cut tax rates and cut spending. Um, we've done a little bit of both of those things, uh, as part of this law and, and at the same time, but we really haven't done very much. The tax system is a little bit less progressive, but not a big change. We cut some spending, but we've also raised other spending. So the big thing we've done is we've increased budget deficits. And 
that sort of uh, uh, undercuts the supply side effects because one of the things that government borrowing does is it crowds out private economic activity. If the government's going into the capital market to, to try to, to raise funds for, to finance government activities, that's less money available for the private sector. And so on the one hand, you may have supply-side tax cuts that encourage business activity. On the other hand, having the government claiming more of the resources generated in the economy means there's going to be less private activity. And so that's one of the reasons why the predicted effects of the tax law uh, aren't, uh, in terms of the longer-term effects, where the supply-side effects are mostly what we see, why they aren't uh, more impressive. Because there's deficit effects in there that are working against whatever positive supply-side effects the tax cut itself might have. So let's explore a little more at the sort of almost micro level. So I'm a corporation. I've just gotten a big tax cut. Um, I already got a lot of cash on hand, by the way, and I haven't invested with the cash on hand. But suddenly I've gotten a tax cut, and I'm going to invest in new projects which supposedly are very productive. Why am I doing it now when they were productive yesterday if I had invested in them and I had cash on hand? Well, the argument is that you're facing a lower tax rate. You, at least for the next five years, get to write off immediately qualifying investment in machinery and equipment. Uh, which is a, a ben- bigger benefit in terms of depreciation deductions than you got before, so that you face a lower cost of capital uh, than taking account of the tax provisions than you did before. So that investments that might have been, you know, looked mediocre before and maybe not worth undertaking might look a little bit better. And maybe also with a somewhat stronger economy generated by the demand stimulus, really, you might say, I'm going to have more customers, and so maybe I'll maybe I'll undertake that investment that I wasn't sure about. Mm -hmm. Now, a a big argument that was also made about why companies were sitting on cash was that there was a lot of uncertainty and, uh, you know, that we needed to resolve that. uh, Frankly, adopting a tax law which has a lot of expiring provisions doesn't seem to be a very good way to do that. To reduce uncertainty. So Kevin Hassett, who is, the I think, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, has written a paper saying that most gains go to workers from a corporate tax cut. And there's a big debate over whether the corporate tax, the incidence of it is the technical term, falls on workers or on corporations, or on capital, ultimately. And he claims that most currently fall on workers, and therefore there'll be three thousand to $7,000 on average gains for workers because you cut the tax rate since the workers used to pay that, basically. Now they're going to get it back. Your thoughts. By the way, there's a little secret piece to this story, which I'll let you tell. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it is public information <laughs> that I was Kevin's dissertation supervisor <laughs> uh, uh, at, at another university. Um, and I have ac- he and I have actually written several uh, academic papers together over the years, and he's a very good friend of mine. So uh, I, that... Uh, Take that as, uh, as you wish as, as I uh, uh, give you my comments. Uh, I think, Kevin, I mean, the, it, is, it is important to note there's a lot of uncertainty in general. Uh, this is actually something I've written on, the incidence of the corporate income tax. It's a lot of uncertainty about when, uh, who, who benefits from changes in provisions. Say you lower the corporate tax rate, uh, that certainly increases mm-hmm. revenues after tax. 
how much of that ends up translating into higher wages, how much of it ends up translating into higher values for shareholders. Uh, there's probably some of both there, but the question is, what's the dividing line? It gets more complicated when you start thinking about not simple changes in the corporate tax rate, but the many very complicated changes that this law uh, included uh, that apply to primarily multinational corporations. Taxes on their overseas profits, uh, removal of taxes on repatriation of profits from overseas, so-called uh, uh, base erosion and tax of, anti-tax avoidance provisions aimed at uh, domestic companies uh, with, uh, in, term, in their transactions with related foreign companies. These are pretty detailed, pretty complicated provisions which really don't even exist in other countries. And so trying to think about what the net impact of all these provisions is going to be, not only on the incentives for corporations to invest and expand, but also on on how much uh, it's going to translate into higher wages for their employees. It's, it's a very difficult thing to predict. And, and, and as a result of that, it lends itself to a wide range of predictions, particularly when uh, there's a lot at stake. And so uh, unlike other things where we might have a pretty narrow band where you know, no reputable economist could venture outside because everybody knows it's got to be sort of in this range, this is one of these areas where the plausible outcomes or uh, range of plausible outcomes is pretty large. That said, Kevin's sort of prediction is sort of defines one end of the uh, range of possible outcomes. And I think other predictions have been considerably more modest. Uh, that uh, I think there, there is general expectation that wages will rise as a result of the business tax changes, but uh, perhaps you know, not on the order of... Uh, Three to seven thousand uh, per family, but maybe, you know, five hundred to a thousand or something like that over the course of uh, over the course of the um, uh, of the ten year period. But I but I have to stress there is a lot of uncertainty about this, and so you can you can you can uh, tell a story about why you think the result is going to be very large or very small, uh, and uh, you know the the bright side, at least from an academic's point of view, is that we're going to get a lot of new information. I, I once heard Paul Samuelson say, wasn't the exogenous shock from the oil embargo wonderful? Because we were going to learn so much about the economy. And all I could think of is, thank God he doesn't study thermonuclear war. <laughs> so, yes, so what seems like a problem to the rest of us for economists is just a good exogenous shock that will teach us a lot about what happens with the economy. I will say, by the way, the paper that Hassett makes these claims in is a cross-national paper. He looks across countries. He tries to control for all the differences across those countries. And it's a heroic effort is probably the kindest way to describe it. Uh, and so there's just lots of reasons to believe that those kinds of comparisons are exceptionally hard to make. Um, so uh, let me just ask one more thing about these productive investments. Is there a sense among people who have looked at it that there's just a lot of projects that if we could just make it a little cheaper uh, to get the capital that people could invest in them? So there is this procession ready to go? You know, I, I think one of the things that uh, economists try not to do is to, you know, at a, at a micro level sort of say, where is, the, where is the dearth of investment? Where is there really strong need? I think about the only place where we can be sure where we don't have enough investment is in the public sector. 
but uh, that's a, you know that's a, a different problem and a different uh, story. Um, I think you know within the private sector, some some of the issues may be, or some of the investments may be decisions of plant locations. You know companies that uh, are not necessarily uh, going to expand uh, full, you know in a, in a large way, but may decide for the next plant that they're thinking about uh, uh, building, whether to build it in the United States rather than some other country. Now, we're not talking about moving plants from China to the United States. Uh, we're talking about you know, relatively similarly situated countries. Uh, you, know, you could think about the automobile industry. You know, BMW has plants in Germany. It's got plants in the United States. Uh, sort of decisions of that kind, I think, are you know, certainly probably the, the calculations have been changed by the tax, the tax cut. So if the Trump tax cut is successful, what sort of would you think would be the, the most likely uh, and most optimistic things that could happen in terms of growth and the economy? And then let's go to what the well, downside I, is. I, I actually think, you know, I, I, most optimistic, I don't know, but I, I, I think the consensus, I'm, I feel comfortable. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I think I feel comfortable with a consensus forecast. I think if you were going to predict what's going to happen, and it's really hard to know the political situation is, is so unusual right now. But if, if you were trying to predict what's going to happen, obviously there's going to be some resolution of all the expiring provisions in the tax cuts, just the way there was with respect to the 2001 legislation. How that resolves itself, I don't know. It obviously depends in part on who's in control in the next four or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still going to have uh, very big deficits as a result, even, on, even under good economic uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, and that is therefore going to call forth, at some point, uh, additional uh, changes in the tax system or on the spending side, because we're on an unsustainable path right now. So, so let's talk about that. Uh, so in train of the tax bill, the administration signed a really surprising spending bill, which, by the way, was good for the University of California. Uh, because it included a lot of R&D spending. We were getting prepared for the notion that budgets at NIH and NSF, Department of Energy, were going to go way down, and we were going to see a great loss of revenue at Cal. But it turns out this new budget didn't do any of that, and in fact increased a bunch of those budgets. So it was good for Cal. Whether it was good for America, let's go there. <laughs> okay. Well, so, so the, um, the um, CBO forecast that came out this week is projecting that under current law, which means, you know, will these provisions expire? And on the spending side, after this largesse, uh, as a result of the budget bill uh, in, in February, uh, we're going to go back to being uh, uh, miserly and, and uh, fiscally responsible and have spending sort of slowly fall as a share of GDP. Uh, so those are both unlikely outcomes. But under those unlikely outcomes, the ratio of publicly held national debt to GDP at the, in 2028 is going to be close to one. That is roughly one year's GDP in terms of our national debt. More likely, if you just sort of assume that, that we just keep doing what we're doing, that is extend the provisions that are going to expire, continue to let spending grow, not as fast as it's growing this year, but, but at a reasonable pace, the, that ratio is more likely to be about 106, 107%. That puts us, in terms of the, our level of debt relative to the economy, 
where we were in 1946, which is the highest in the history of the United States. The big difference between 1946 and 2028 is that 1946, the war was over, and all the borrowing was in the past, and we had a, you know, a lot of uh, pent-up demand for civilian production and very, very rapid growth rates in our future. And deficit, the national debt came down very quickly relative to the economy. Uh, whereas now, it, it, things just look bleaker, bleaker and bleaker into the future because uh, the baby boom is retiring, will continue to do so, will uh, cost of Medicare uh, even controlling for you know, the, the size of the recipient population is going up. So Social Security, Medicare, and also Medicaid, which all largely pays for the elderly as well, uh, is going, are going to be very, very large parts of our budget. They're already half of the federal budget. And uh, you probably didn't, you may not have known that. And uh, they're, they're going to be, you know, you basically you take Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and national defense and interest. You've pretty much, that's, that's the federal budget. There's not much left. So what we tend to think of as government spending at the federal level is, is not uh, really what it is anymore. And that's just going to keep growing uh, under current law. And, uh, and so when we hit that position in 2028, assuming we haven't had some sort of a financial crisis induced by that, things will just continually continue to erode until at some point we have to deal with it. Uh, and when that happens and how we do it is very hard to say. But uh, obviously it has to happen at some point. So there are some people like Ken Rogoff who claims that that will put us past the point at which we're going to start looking like Greece and we're going to have trouble uh, getting our debt covered on the market. And others like Bob Hall who has made really draconian notions that in 10 years we won't be able to actually finance the federal debt. What do you think? I think I don't want to make a prediction about that, but, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're not Greece, and uh, you know, we have, we're, we're still the reserve, world's reserve currency. The, uh, I don't think the pound is going to take that over anytime soon. Yeah, well, they've, and, uh, <laughs> they got Brexit. And, and, and nor, is, nor is the euro or the, or the yen. And, and, uh, and so that gives us a certain privilege uh, because because we can still borrow at very low interest rates because issuing dollar denominated securities is something that we do very well and and uh, other other uh, people around the world and governments and central banks want to hold the issue, the the securities the u s treasury is issuing so it, it's going to be a while i think before uh, before we hit any kind of serious problem and i don't think the results of uh, Rog- uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt necessarily apply to the U.S., but that doesn't mean that we're, we can do this forever, and the question is when we stop. And the, the real problem with, uh, to me with this is that the, the best kinds of adjustments to this problem are very long-range in nature. That is, if we were going to reform the Medicare system, reform the Social Security system, we know we can't, and if we don't feel that we can't, we certainly shouldn't, you know, go to 80-year-olds and say, we're cutting your benefits. That's obviously not possible. When Paul Ryan was proposing to cut entitlement programs uh, a few years ago, he said, well, let's hold everybody over age 55 harmless. 
And you could imagine, and when we did our social, last social security reform, which was in 1983, we undertook very gradual changes in the reti normal retirement age, which are still underway, you know, now in 2018. So the reason for doing these as very long-range changes is because we're talking about lifetime planning that people are doing. You know, you're thinking you're working, you're thinking about when to retire, how much to save for retirement. It's, it's important for you to know what's going to be there when you retire. And so uh, it, it really does make sense to make these changes on a very long-term basis. But that means that you can't deal with a crisis that way. You, it means you, you want to say, okay, we know we're going to need more money in 10, 20, 30 years. Let's put ourselves on a path to get that, not let's suddenly make huge changes today. But if we get to a point where we haven't made any changes at all, and all of a sudden we have to satisfy capital markets by having substantial cuts in our deficit immediately, we won't, be able, we won't have the luxury of making these kind of long-range changes. So it sounds to me like you feel a little queasy about this. I do. Okay. So if, if this is successful in some sense, will this be a vindication, perhaps, of supply-side economics if they're successful? Would this... Because past data and information has suggested that supply-side economics does not deliver the goods. It's a question of, of scale. Uh, you know, if you cut tax rates to zero, uh, people will respond. And then what are you going to do for money? The issue is how big an effect are you going to get? And does it, is, is the payoff big enough to justify the deficits that you're running? Uh, so I, you know, I think it's very unlikely <coughs> the, the mantra of tax cuts paying for themselves. Um, you, know, you may have heard of it, some of it in the fall when uh, people were pushing for a tax cut. That's pretty much in the past now, and I, nobody's really project. Pro, no, no responsible person uh, or agency is projecting anything close to that. So, you know, I think it's it was an easy easy thing to do. It's it's always easy to cut taxes. It's always hard to figure out uh, how to how to pay for them. Let's go to the question. We haven't talked much about distributional consequences either, and other people may want to ask about that. Got a question? That Wayne? Yeah. So um, I'm beginning to feel um, even better that my children actually speak fluent Mandarin because <laughs> I feel like uh, in 15 years I'll have to move to China to do well. But um, what do you feel is the end game of all this in 15 years? Do you think America will, be, will go the way of, say, France and Britain in terms of where they are in the world economy, or do you think we'll still maintain our number one or number two position, GDP-wise? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a political question, not an economic one. Uh, maybe Henry... Henry. Yeah, we get the hard ones. <laughs> you know, it, the, um, these are the problems, the, the fiscal problems that the U.S. faces are small in comparison to other problems that we face. Compared to global warming, it's easy. And, uh, it's, but it's an issue of political will and, uh, you might say, uh, you know, responsibility. Global warming is everybody's Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. you yeah, you won't, you won't have anywhere to move. Uh, speak, <laughs> speaking Mandarin won't help you if the t 
temperature rises globally 10 by 10 degrees Celsius. Um, but, it, but, but it is, I mean, what I mean is that, you know, you can, you can say that's, that's a really difficult problem. It involves big changes. We could, there have been commissions. You know, there was a, in, in the, some, not that long ago, there was the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which was a bipartisan commission to try to sort out uh, fiscal reforms that, that we, you know, would put us on a sustainable path. You know, and then you look at the package and, you know, it seemed, seemed reasonable. It wasn't going to change life as we know it. And, uh, it, you know, just nobody said, nobody felt like they wanted to do it. I think the real problem is that without a crisis, nobody seems willing to uh, confront the, you know, unpleasant, unpleasant arithmetic. It's, well, it's, you can't, it's, hard to, it's, it's hard to get elected right. taking things away from people. And we've also found that the Republicans, who used to be the party of fiscal discipline, were not under George W. Bush, and they're certainly not under, under Donald Trump. So... Well, I think it was, I think it was the, the, uh, Dick, the great economist Dick Cheney who said that Reagan proved that deficits don't matter, uh, which was a political statement, not an economic Definitely one. Definitely not an economic <laughs> statement. Okay, next question. Me? Uh, yes, you had mentioned that corporations have money, and I heard today on the radio that they are buying back stock. Can you walk me through that? What does that mean for me as a portfolio holder or for the country? So corporations, if they have cash that they're not using, uh, can pay dividends. They can increase dividends. They can buy back their shares. Uh, It's getting into details of corporate finance, why they would want to do one or the other. Uh, Either way, they're... Uh, relieving themselves of cash that they don't need to the benefit of their shareholders. And uh, unlike some people who, who see this as a terrible thing, I don't see it as a terrible thing. I actually think if a corporation <coughs> doesn't have a productive investment to make uh, and other corporations do, then giving it to this, you know, buying back shares so that the shareholders who tender their shares now have money they can invest in another company is fine. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the alternative of, of having a co- corporation that says we've got to invest every dollar we've got, no matter how unproductive the investment, that doesn't sound like a good alternative. I, I think, it, you know, to the extent that people were hoping there'd be this, you know, huge investment boom and, you know, that every company would go out and invest more and the share repurchases show that isn't happening, that might Lead them to be disappointed, but I, I, frankly, I I don't see it overall as being that important. But it is true that if every corporation was doing that, then we wouldn't get the investment. Every corporation were were doing it, that would mean they were not investing, right? right. And then we wouldn't get supply. But I mean, there you know there are companies that are expanding rapidly. You know, even whether the economy as a whole is growing rapidly or not, there are always going to be some companies expanding rapidly and some companies contracting, and that's just the normal way of things go. I'm curious, in economic terms, if you were potentate, that what would you have done at this point in time, if anything, both on as far as uh, corporate taxes and personal taxes? Well, on corporate taxes, my answer is easy, because I had a proposal... Uh, which I've been pushing for several years, which was adopted by, which I should say is, was not, I did not, never viewed as a 
Republican proposal, but was adopted uh, by the Republicans in the House of Representatives in June 2016 as part of their first salvo in this called, well, the full name of it is a destination-based cash flow tax. And what it would do, including a border adjustment, would have uh, made it, I think, first of all, it would have eliminated all the problems we have with multinationals shifting profits to low-tax countries. It also would have uh, strongly encouraged companies to locate production facilities in the United States. That uh, died last the end of, in Ju- end of July. Uh, there were some businesses that really liked it, some that didn't. It was sufficiently controversial that, given that the Republicans decided they were going to do tax reform with Republicans only, and they had a scant majority in the Senate, they couldn't have anything controversial, at least controversial among Republicans. But that's my answer, and I actually think we're going to end up moving in that direction in the future, even though we move, the, the law actually did move a little bit in that direction in ways that are a little bit complicated. Um, in terms of other things, I honestly didn't think, I mean, there, there are plenty of things you could do to reform the individual tax system. I didn't view it as, as something that was as acute a problem as it was, say, in 1986 when our tax rates were much higher and we had many more tax loopholes than, than we had this time around. So I, th- I think that was really a, a solution in search of a, of a problem. Um, whereas I think on the business side, particularly on the corporate side, I, I think we really did need reform. It didn't have to really be a tax cut. Uh, a tax reform, I think, would have been feasible without cutting taxes overall, but that would have meant that some people's taxes would have gone up as others went down, and so politically it would have been a much less popular thing to do. I'm curious what the impact of the um, tax bill is on income inequality. The um, Projections are, and I've done some myself and others, the Joint Tax Committee on Taxation has done some so-called distributional analysis looking at the benefits. If you look at the tax benefits by income group, it's a little bit hard to tell in part because of all these expiring provisions. So after the provisions expire, it looks worse because a lot of the provisions that expire hit lower down in in the income distribution. If you look at the first few years, it's still, as a percentage of income, is slightly regressive. That is, it, it probably it helps people at the top a little bit as a share of income a little bit more than it helps people down lower. Um, that's not a big deal. If I, were, if I were trying to describe what the distributional consequences of the law are, I wouldn't focus just on the taxes, which, as I say, it was a cut that was mildly regressive in nature, but I would think about what the, what the other shoe is that hasn't dropped. That is, if we have to pay for this, and we pay for it through other future tax increases or through cuts in spending, we want to think about what the, what the, how equitable those cuts or tax increases or cuts will be. For example, if we, uh, if we say, well, we can't afford, uh, you know, because of the tax cut, we have big deficits now, we have to cut Medicaid. Obviously, that's, a, a, in total, a very regressive change. So it's, it's a little, I, I think it, it, the, it, we can only give an incomplete answer in terms of how, uh, you know, whether it was mildly regressive or, or even or much worse than that. I have a question, which is more of an overview kind of question, which is 
How much do you think that good policy analysis enters into our formulation of tax policy? Are you feeling good about that or bad about that? Or Well, I felt great when my proposal was, was being considered. <laughs> I, 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 I would say not only great, but, but somewhat shocked. Uh, I, you know, I think there are, you know, good policy ideas find their way in. There are, there are things, I would say, if you looked at some of the business provi- tax provisions in the law, there, there are some that make sense and that uh, benefited from, uh, from expert advice, admittedly in a very, very collapsed time frame. Um, you know, and then there are other things where, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's just clearly the onslaught of politics, you know, you know, steamrolling any, you know, professional opinion. I, I think it's valuable. You never know when it's going to happen, whether I, when ideas are, you know, that people have developed in academics or other, other places are, are going to have an effect. I think it's still worth doing just because the stakes are so high. But, um, you know, one shouldn't expect too much. So let's take a last question if somebody's got one. What's your worst case scenario if there is an escalating trade war um, uh, with China and other countries uh, relative to this tax change? Well, I mean, that could be terrible. You know, if, if we have a collapse of the world trading system, it would be bad for us, it would be bad for other countries, you know, and... Uh, there, there are a lot of people in the U.S. in the U.S. government who understand that, and uh, I'm, you know, I hate, I, I hate to even contemplate what could happen. I mean, certainly the worst case scenario is terrible. Uh, it would be, you know, collapse of, of, you know, think of the industries in the U.S. that depend on exports, and not just exports, imports. You know, there we with with you know modern supply chains, you know, companies in the U.S. that are exporters are also importers and. Saying, "Oh well, you know, it's you know, we're going to help you because you're an exporter, and we're we're going to kill all those imports." Well, that may not help you very much, and uh, so it could be it could be terrible. I'm I'm me- in a very measured way. I'm not too pessimistic because I think it it's such an obviously terrible outcome that uh, one would hope that, and, and it, you know, it's something that over which we have control that 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 we wouldn't go very far. And that it will have a lot of noise and, and perhaps not so much action. Well, I want to thank you, Alan Orbeck, uh, expert on taxes and economics. And thanks to everybody for being here tonight. It's uh, been great. It's wonderful talking with Alan, who is always so sober minded and thoughtful about economics. Thanks. <laughs>